Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby, alright? And joining me as always via the miracle of satellite technology, we dare you to say his name five times. It's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? I'm good. Uh, I know for a fact that that is Candyman. It sure is. Because I get very annoyed when people say that you say Candyman's name three times. Yes. it's five. It's five, yeah. I still think Candyman might be one of the best horror films of like the last like 30, 40 years. Yeah, you'll get no argument from me. I think it's fantastic. It's a great realisation of a very creepy Clive Barker story. It's got a great social commentary element to it in its kind of depiction of urban decay and American institutions ignoring people of colour in kind of urban areas. And also that Philip Glass score is uh, unbeatable. Mm, It creeps me the fuck out every time I hear it. Mm. And also... Um, you know, you hear that like the world population of bees is on the wane. Yeah, yeah fuck, fuck them. They're in league with candy. <laughs> they're in league with Candyman. So, not interested. Thank you. I don't care about your pollination and basically the food like kind of uh, system just collapsing and and uh, the whole ecology brought down, crashing to kind of a disastrous end. Don't come out of Candyman's mouth. It's fucked up. <laughs> Been a busy week for news, uh, as as always. Uh, Cannes Film Festival is on at the minute, but the the whole kind of glamorous and glitzy affair has been uh, kind of dominated by the Woody Allen kind of saga. Is is kind of resurfaced? Why is it resurfaced now? Is it just because he's got a new film out, uh, or is it kind of has anything new been kind of found out? Uh, well, it's partly because he's got a new film out, and obviously that is any time that that kind of rises its head, its head up. You know, people start talking about the uh, the well-established allegations against him. But it's also because his son Ronan Farrow wrote a uh, an op-ed piece where he he talked about how, but obviously the fact that he thinks his father is guilty and that he did uh, molest his his sister, but also because saying that. Uh, talking about his own personal failings at the time for not believing her for a very great period of time uh, and his eventually coming to believe that uh, the allegations were true. Mm. Yeah, and we've had a, a kind of a weird thing where like a lot of people have been coming out and saying, I now no longer can watch Woody Allen's films or, you know, uh, there's been a lot of think pieces about this. Um, we did a whole episode on on kind of separating art from the artist. But to me, it does feel just like muckraking. I mean, I am totally on board with, with you know, not saying anyone's lying or anything in this situation. But it, it feels like opportunism because the guy's got a film out. Um, I, I, do, I, def, I think that is why it's coming out now, is that is the point at which you're going to get the most press for it. But I do feel like there is there is a nobility in saying, you know, hey, this is a thing you shouldn't, be allowed to forget about in the same way that every time Roman Polanski has a film out, we shouldn't forget the fact that he raped a 13 year old girl. Mm. You know, I think that, and obviously they're, they're different situations because obviously Polanski was convicted for it and we know that it definitely happened. The Woody Allen thing is it's an allegation and it's, it, it's left up to individuals whether or not they believe it happened, but it's still, it's a thing that's out there. It's a thing that, uh, I think it is part of the public con- the public conception of Woody Allen now. So to ignore it and to say to just kind of say ah you know it's fine we'll just let him keep making films and not comment on the fact that there's a, a chance that he's a monster. Mm. Um, you know that would be doing a disservice to you know the actual kind of victims of in this particular case and maybe also victims of sexual abuse in general who tend to get ignored. And I would like, I just like to apologise to people for how croaky I sound. I have a cold. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know how pleasant this is to listen to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially when we're talking about child abuse and yeah. it sounds so terrible. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's a kind of ugly business. Um, I went to Cannes once. Oh, wow. Um, I was uh, on holiday. Uh, first kind of foreign holiday I'd been on with my, uh, my now wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were staying down the road in Nice. And it was like just weird that the Cannes Film Festival happened to be on at the same time. And I said t- 
to uh, my wife, let's go, let's go and kind of see. I've been to film festivals before. Surely you can just kind of rock up and find a screening on somewhere and just buy a ticket and go and see something. It'll be cool. We'll go for the day. It'll be good. So we went there and that is not the case. Like mm-hmm. it's a proper like industry festival. You can't even like go anywhere near it unless you've got like laminates coming out of your ass because it's, it's, you know, it's pretty kind of locked down. And for all the shit munchers on the outside, you get to look at the red carpet that's about it. So we were kind of a little bit frustrated by this and went for a walk, got lost, uh, ended up on a beach and saw a homeless man uh, defecating straight into the sea off the edge of a pier. Wow. So wow. that is that is what happened when I went to the glamorous film festival in Cannes. <laughs> so um, you can take Cannes, you can stick it because it's rubbish. Yeah, I, I have no personal first-hand experience. I just know of pe- friends of mine who have gone with films with short films and things like that to try and present it as part of various programs and they always say and and some people who have gone as as journalists and uh you know as uh buyers for for various um uh, programmers for for various cinemas and they all make it sound very glamorous so Mm. i think they were definitely in the part where they they rope off the view of all the homeless people yeah yeah absolutely in other news in non kind of uh, homeless person defecating news the cast of Black Panther, the uh, Marvel film, uh, which is due in, I think, two years, it just keeps getting kind of better and better now to the point that it is almost impossibly good. Yes, it was announced this week that Michael B. Jordan is joining the film as, a, 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 I believe, an unnamed villain at this point. But that's very exciting because obviously he, this will be his third film with Ryan Coogler, who directed him in Fruitvale Station and Creed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they obviously have great past form together and I'll be excited to see them try something different with their relationship where he's not playing a uh, tragic or heroic figure but playing an out-and-out villain. Um, but also there's rumours that Lupita Nyong'o is going to be cast to it as well, who is uh, firmly, it seems to be, in kind of the Disney uh, uh, ensemble company at the moment, considering she's also Maz Kanata in the uh, Star Wars films. Mm, and the wolf in Jungle Book. Yes. So... Which is going to be sequelized. one would think it has been pretty successful hasn't it yeah so uh it but hopefully in this one she won't be cgi because mm. she's a great actress and it seems as good as she is when she does do kind of voice work it always seems a bit strange when you don't actually get to see someone on screen who you know can do great work because they've mm. got an oscar for doing good work on screen mm. she's like the female andy circus do you know what i mean <laughs> the day that like, i remember reading a quote from uh, Andy Serkis, and I think he was doing, he did that TV miniseries about the the Moors murderers, the Myra Hindley, uh, Ian Brady thing. Mm. And um, he was like, it's just nice to go to work and act in trousers <laughs> rather than a, <laughs> a leotard and dots. Uh, and I was just like, yeah, Lupita Nyong'o needs some trousers. Um, <laughs> that is uh, kind of a good cast and uh, good uh, director um, and the kind of character was fun in Civil War as we discussed last week. Is there no chance that Michael B. Jordan will be uh, Johnny Flame, Johnny Cage, what's his name? The Flame Man from Fantastic Four. Um, <laughs> Flame Man, yeah. Flame Man, you know, Flame yeah. Man. Fiery, fiery boy. <laughs> no, although someone did point out that the mar- the MCU does seem to be where uh, human torches go for rehabilitation because that's where because obviously Chris Evans was in the original Fantastic Four. Oh, he was, wasn't he? So if they get the rights back to Fantastic Four at some point, I would like to have a sequence in which he and he and Captain America are fighting, and then suddenly someone brings up the the Human Torch, and they're just kind of like, oh, that prick. Mm, yeah, they just look at the camera, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> just in the kind of hot tub time machine way. <laughs> um, but uh, speaking of, I just go back to my point about Andy Serkis. Isn't Andy Serkis in Black Panther as well? Also, not CGI because he was set up as the villain for Black Panther in Avengers Two. Is that correct? Yeah, he loses his arm in Avengers Two, and I think he'll be back as the villain in that one, probably with a vibranium arm. Hmm. I hope so. I mean, I don't know what that means, but I I hope that for him. Um, is that like <laughs> unobtainium? Uh, vibranium is the kind of all-purpose magic metal in the MCU. That's what uh, Cap's shield is made out of. It's what Black Panther's suit is made out of. It's what uh, Ultron was made out of. It's is yeah. It's basically a metal that allows you to be invincible, mm. and it's what he was smuggling in uh, Age of Ultron that 
they were trying to get hold of. Right, okay, with you, with you. Speaking of comebacks, although we weren't, uh, I, just, <laughs> I don't like segues, um, Steven Soderbergh has, uh, shock horror, come out of retirement. Yeah, he his retirement where he was also directing every episode of a TV series and <laughs> producing other people's films. Yeah, and uh, DPing people's films as well, I think, did he? Yes, he he uh, he shot and edited Mad Max. No, no, he didn't. Magic Mike. <laughs> Magic Mike Mad right. Max is a mashup that needs to happen. So like Mad Mike XXL, a kind uh, of like yep. post-apocalyptic stripper comedy, I guess. Or at, at, at the very least, you could just have one where after the events of Fury Road, uh, Furiosa is trying to find somewhere to relax and she happens upon the Kings of Tampa and they just show her <laughs> a really good time because she's had a really tough go of it. I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But she just looks at everyone witheringly. Uh, kind of unimpressed away yeah so what's Steven Soderbergh doing he's doing a film called Lucky Logan which is Mm. a a heist film about which not a huge amount is known other than that it stars uh, Channing Tatum who's obviously become something of a regular of his in recent years uh, and that it's going to be him returning to direct for the first time since Haywire so he managed to last about five years without making a feature film which is kind of like a, a Jay-Z or a Frank Sinatra retirement. Hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's that's just a, a long break between things. Yeah, it's like, it's, he's basically just done the, the length of time it takes Paul Thomas Anderson to make a film. Hmm, yeah, yeah. But yeah, during that time, he also directed a shitload of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it wasn't really retirement and he's, he's back out of it. Speaking of resurrections, even though I wasn't, but I don't like segues... <laughs> Uh, Terry Gilliam, who I believe is trying, has been trying to make a film about Don Quixote for quite some time, mm-hmm. um, has maybe got it back off the ground this time with uh, Michael Palin instead of John Hurt, and uh, excitingly Adam Driver. Yeah, instead of whoever Johnny Depp was replaced by, I think he's probably his role. Ski Ulrich, probably. <laughs> yeah, his that role has probably been attached to about eight or eight or nine different people at this point. But yes, it's. The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, which is his kind of revisionist take on it, in which uh, at one point, I believe it was a advertising executive, gets sent back in time and meets the original Don Quixote. At this time, I believe it's a filmmaker, which I think may be suggesting that things are getting very personal for him, mm-hmm. um, or a film student, I think it is. Uh, and yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's very exciting that it might happen, but at the same time, it's increasingly getting very hard to uh think that it will happen even though things are lining up like uh, i think amazon were producing it at some point and he's got a uh lead actor who is you know kind of young and healthy and unlikely to get kind of to like just drop dead dead suddenly although uh, he also has to contend with the kind of the gargantuan that is star wars so that mm. might that might cause problems for him if you can't start filming by the end of the year. But uh, yeah, it's it's something that has been in development for a very long time. There's a whole documentary about the fact that it fell apart, lost in La Mancha, which is great. So it's one thing that I think a lot of film fans and cinephiles really want to see happen. But it's it it it's increasingly hard to get excited for it until the point that you know it's in the can and it's actually showing on a screen somewhere. Mm. It's a bit like the Twin Peaks revival. It doesn't matter how many people can say they're in it and, you know, official announcements. I'm not actually going to believe it until I'm watching it. Yeah, and and also the Twin Peaks revival got weirdly devastating this week when it was announced that David Bowie was meant to be in it before his death. He was meant to be reprising his role, but which does underline the fact that if you weren't cast in the Twin Peaks revival, which apparently half of Hollywood is, then... You're probably no one of any import. Mm, it's like 226 speaking parts or something in this season. Yeah, and uh, yeah, lots of big name people just showing up for what I can only assume are probably very small roles. Mm, yeah, yeah. Imagine if they made a, a, t- a TV show or a film, but all of the background artists were A list kind of stars. I mean, that's the only way I can figure they get squeeze all of those people in and get them equal screen time. Yeah, or, I mean, people have been saying that apparently the deal that David Lynch has is that he could basically make as many episodes as he wanted. 
mm-hmm. or that it was fairly unclear how many he would make and that it may end up being at one point there was a rumor that it was he'd shot enough material for two seasons and it was going to air over two years or something so maybe the size of that cast list lends credence to that that they just kept shooting and now it's like oh yeah i've basically doubled the total amount of film i've ever shot in my entire career mm. yeah, yeah the tv cancellation period is, is it called sweeps or, or mid-season replacements is that what it's called uh sweeps is uh, there's kind of periods in winter and and spring where advertisers kind of judge what f- programs are going to put their money behind and it's when shows will draw out big episodes mid-season replacements is just when like a show does badly and they just take some show out of storage that they hadn't found a place for this is really just um the red wedding of television <laughs> this period mm. of time is just where everyone looks at their slate and says eh no we're not going to renew that so these people yeah. are out of work there's been a lot of high-profile casualties. Um, uh, Agent Carter has gone, um, and I haven't seen that show, but uh, a lot of people liked it, which is uh, kind of surprising why they kind of chopped it. Uh, before before we went on air, we were talking about Castle, a long-running show, very popular with kind of mums, I presume. It's a kind of show, <laughs> my, kind of show my mum would like. And also, speaking of that, uh, they've finally kind of put a nail in the nail in. Oh, hang on. That's not a nail in the coffin. They've actually buried the coffin of CSI because the last surviving spin-off of the original CSI is now dead. Yes, yeah, CSI Cyber, the computer-based extension of the series starring Patricia Arquette in a role where she constantly seemed like she knew she was a, probably better for the, than this show. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was the last spin-off, the original CSI. CSI Vanilla ended last year or maybe early this year. And, you know, had a big TV movie where they brought back a lot of the old cast. And so this was kind of the last legs of a series that has been kind of a dominant force in the ratings and in pop culture for 16 years, which is very, very impressive, even if the effects of the show probably weren't great in terms of uh, introducing a lot more grisly images into television and also making DNA evidence uh used too often in courts and making uh, you know there's a thing called the csi effect where if there isn't dna evidence juries won't believe it Mm. it's also kind of surprising that the whole shebang run for 16 years um and it was never very good no i mean i remember watching the quentin tarantino two-parter and that was pretty good Mm -hmm. and it certainly was a lot more visually stylish and flashy than a lot of procedurals of that time but uh, it was also, it was just very strange seeing how quickly it transcended being a procedural to being a hit to also being weirdly like science fiction because mm-hmm. the stuff they could do was insane. Right. Um, but like, I think it's a testament to the sheer number of imitators that it's had over the years, not only its spin-offs, but stuff like NCIS and Without a Trace, uh, Criminal Minds in particular, which is a really gory show considering. Um, like, it's something that, had a huge surprisingly huge impact on kind of the a, a the procedural which was a, a genre that seemed to have pretty much just settled into being one thing and this this thing came along and completely shook everything up mm-hmm. last bit of news this week is that brian cranston uh, who everyone knows uh, as dalton trumbo uh, or <laughs> Walter white probably uh, or the dad from Godzilla, you thought I was going to say something else there. <laughs> He's got a new sci-fi anthology series in the works. What's that about? It's going to be an anthology series where each episode is based on a different story from Philip K. Dick. Ah, i got a question, because I don't know the answer to this. He's not still alive, is he, Philip K. Dick? No, he died in about 1981, 1982, because he lived long enough to see like a rough cut of Blade Runner, but I don't think he was alive for when it actually came out. Right, okay, so he probably saw the shit version with the voiceover. <laughs> Poor bastard. Or the, or the one before they were forced to add the voiceover. Mm. So he was oh. like, oh, no, this one's pretty good. People are going to like this. And then mm. he didn't have to suffer through the uh, 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 Harrison Ford's less than enthusiastic narration. Yes, yes. So what's the crack? Is this uh, a miniseries or is it an ongoing thing? Uh, where's it uh, being shown? Is it a network, cable? What's the big idea? I'm not sure who's showing it in the US, but I believe Channel 4 are co-producing it. 
Mm. So it will get shown in the UK at some point, and it's basically taking a lot of his short stories and adapting each one, kind of, I guess, inspired by the success of Black Mirror, mm-hmm. which uh, was a, obviously is a show that has done a similar sort of thing to, and and has a kind of a, a similar has a similar tone to Philip K. Dick's writing in that it looks at society and technology and then wonders what can happen if you push them a little too far and what that does to humanity. Mm. So it feels like this would be the right time for it and also feels like the right um, feels like the right format for Philip K. Dick's writing because as good as some of the films that have been made from his work have been, a lot of his short stories are just they just kind of little thought experiments where you just kind of take a little idea and then explore it briefly. And then the story's kind of over where it, which works great. If you're going to do it just like an hour of television doesn't work so well. If you try and turn it into like a foot feature length action movie starring Ben Affleck or Nicolas Cage. Mm. And just kind of tying this into the last story we had, didn't they just cancel the TV show of minority report? They did. Yes. Which I think everyone had pretty much forgotten existed. Yeah, I, I certainly had. I, I thought it was something that was mooted but never happened. But apparently they made it. And it was a series and it didn't turn out to be very good. But somehow the TV show Sleepy Hollow is still bafflingly in existence. For anyone who hasn't seen that, I'd recommend you see it and think, how did this ever get greenlit and why is it on my television? <laughs> so if they're kind of in the mould of Black Mirror, I very much hope to see Brian Cranston having full penetrative sex with a pig at some point. Well, don't we all? Yeah, I mean, it's his own. He didn't win the Oscar. He saw what Leo had to do to win an Oscar. So, you know, bestiality is probably the next next stop, logically. Yeah, and also, he, I mean, he may be doing that in that HBO film where he's playing LBJ. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know much about LBJ, but I just presumed, you know <laughs> what I mean? There was that kind of thing going on. Well, he's from Texas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Texas forever. Pig fucking forever. <laughs> Forever. Well, it works for our Prime Minister, so, you know, <laughs> why not? Allegedly for the lawyers. Well, no, it happened. Oh, okay, fair I, I was there. Anyway, yeah, fuck, dude, what are we talking about? We're talking about drugs, because we're in the middle of our uh, triumvirate of shows uh, about kind of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I've got a kind of a general idea to kick things off, and it's something that I... It's a, it's a theory of mine that I've been brewing for some time, having kind of experienced a lot of this. And I think there is nothing less interesting than someone else's drug story. Hmm. True or false? I think that's pretty true. I think that it's it's certainly in my experience of just it's the same as having someone describe their dream to you. <laughs> yeah. Maybe maybe once in every one thousand times it'll be a really interesting dream, or they'll tell you a story that's really interesting about the time they got smashed, but in like 999 of those times mm. it'll be just very boring kind of boilerplate and it'll be more interesting to them because they experienced it and the you know if you're in a dream it's hard for you to kind of convey the strangeness of the dream logic and if you're high it's hard for you to kind of convey why a particular thing is interesting mm. so to a third party yeah and i say this because obviously we're going to talk about a lot of people's drug stories um but that kind of if you think about kind of the key texts in uh, drug stories, you think about something like William Burrow, William S. Burroughs, like Naked Lunch or something, um, or Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, both of which have been adapted into films. But they're not really about drugs, are they? They're kind of about other things told through that prism. Yeah, certainly in the case of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, it's more about conveying a feeling of a certain time in american history and american culture the 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 kind of the the end of the 60s particularly during that whole thing about the crest of the wave and everything mm-hmm. uh, but also writing about the ways in which those different the experiences of different drugs were part of viewing the prism of american life as, as in general which is why uh, I mean, I don't particularly care for the film version of Fear and Loving in Las Vegas, but I do respect it in how much it com- it commits to depicting the effects of all of the drugs through its form mm-hmm. uh, and mirroring the uh, effects and the impact of the drugs on the characters through how exactly it 
you know, through the, the kind of lenses they choose and things like that. I think that's probably one of the better ones just in terms of saying this is kind of a pretty close approximation of what it would be like to do all of these various different illegal substances. Mm. Um, and if it's, I mean, are drugs essentially a 20th century concern in art? I mean, we kind of, there's endless stories about alcohol and other things going all the way back um, to kind of like ye olden times. But drugs seem to be, I mean, I can't really think of too much historical kind of dealing with drugs. I mean, you know, I don't know, like laudanum and stuff and like, you know, Sherlock Holmes like to, to kind of uh, smack one off. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, opium and laudanum seem to be kind of the two big ones, but it's never really kind of central. But I think that's also because the 20th century was the first time that you start to really see regulation against drugs mm-hmm. um, and against particular ones, you know, uh, uh, and even during the 20th century, the, the things that were illegal varied a lot. You know, I was doing a lot of research into this and I was surprised by in kind of pre-code Hollywood films, there's a lot of people doing cocaine, like fairly just kind of uh, passively is not kind of a big thing. And then you realize, oh, because it wasn't illegal back then, you know, it may have been controlled, but it was something that people could get hold of fairly easily. And it was also something that was basically thought to be something that high class people did, Mm. you know, very rich people did lots of cocaine. And so it would just form the backdrop of stories. And then uh, in the thirties, you get the production code come in, which says that you can't you basically can't depict any narcotic, even one that is in kind of a quasi legal state. And so I feel like, the fact that the 20th century saw lots of restrictions put on drugs that hadn't really been there before was probably one of the big things why in the latter half of the 20th century and when liberalization of cinema comes along and you can tell different stories and you can depict things that you couldn't depict before because it was it was you would be kind of punished for it mm. that's when you start to see those stories appear again because uh, this this thing that you haven't been able to talk about you can finally talk about so in the early days of Hollywood and it's uh, when dealing with kind of drugs, like you say, pre-code, was there any other attitude other than kind of gay abandon? Because certain films spring to mind of being kind of like alarmist kind of attempts at being almost kind of public service announcements. Like like Reefer Madness is, yeah. is, is a great place to kind of start because that film is gone on to be a kind of like a camp classic, uh, a cult classic even because of its kind of histri- histrionic kind of view on kind of rocking the gange yes exactly that is kind of the the poster boy for it in that its depiction of of drug use and of of uh, smoking weed is uh, basically says that it will make you lose your mind which mm. uh you know i'm sure if you smoked a kind of a metric ton of it in mm-hmm. like a week or something it probably would cause some ill effects and i'm not and i'm sure people have had you know very bad experiences which have kind of badly affected their lives but the extent to which everyone's life in reefer madness is completely mm-hmm. utterly destroyed by smoking a single jazz cigarette mm-hmm. is is kind of hilarious and it's it's amazing to watch it now as you know the push to make it legal everywhere in the u.s increases as it's been decriminalized in the well not completely decriminalized in the uk but certainly it's you're not you're less likely to go to prison for having it than you were like 10 15 years ago uh it's 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 a it's a fascinating relic um Mm. in its depiction of of weed as just kind of the ultimate evil i mean there was kind of a lot of this though wasn't there um kind of almost propaganda films for for everything from drugs to alcohol to drag racing to STDs to anything which all now viewed kind of through our kind of cynical 21st century lens are kind of preposterous but one wonders how they were perceived at the time I mean was reefer madness laughed out of town um back in the was it made in the 30s was it very early 30s yeah, it was shot in 1936 and it was produced by, I believe, a church group right? who, who intended it as a very earnest and honest uh, thing about the the effects of, of weed on people. But mm. then, it, you know, it, was, it didn't do anything and no one cared. But then two years later, it was purchased by a film producer who then started touring it on the exploitation circuit because there was a very fertile 
there was a very fertile market basically for films about drug use and abuse and things like that or prostitution which were essentially playing up the more lurid and lascivious details of it you know mm. essentially the uh american film version of you know what penny dreadfuls were in in victorian london something to provide people with a, a vicarious thrill more than to actually educate them in any way or in better you know better their lives and reefer madness was intended you know as as something to genuinely kind of warn people but the amateurishness and the the terrible grasp of tone <laughs> meant that it worked wonderfully as the as the, the second thing as, as exploitation and uh, that's kind of where it found its initial success and then obviously in the seven, 60s and 70s it became uh, a cult classic mm. when do you think kind of the first serious film about drugs was made i've kind of racked my brain to try and think about the earliest example um, of a film which deals with drugs in kind of like a more adult way. Um, and I think the earliest I can think of is like something like The Man with the Golden Arm. Yeah, that would be... That's the earliest I can think of where it tries to grapple with the effects of it in a way that isn't too sensationalistic. I mean, it's it's definitely sensationalistic from our perspective because it's a 50s melodrama. Mm-hmm. But within the, the kind of the context of 50s melodrama, within the kind of the context of the drugs films that had come before it, it certainly feels like one that has a more mature attitude towards the impact of drugs on, and particularly heroin on, you know, the main character's life, the main character in this case being played by uh, Frank Sinatra in probably one of his best acting roles. I'd definitely say so. Yeah. I did kind of try and find examples before then, but uh, apparently the first ever drug film was actually an an anti-opium film. It was shot by Thomas Edison in 1894. Wow. And it was called Chinese Opium Den, and it is lost to history. So we don't know exactly what it was about, but apparently it was a serious one about opium dens and about uh, their connection to uh, Chinese people. Because for much of the early part of the 20th century, drugs were essentially associated with uh, Chinese people and the working class, even though like everyone in Hollywood did cocaine. <laughs> yeah. You know, which is just something that I think you kind of see throughout history throughout hollywood history is that they depict things as bad that they themselves are you know doing all the time mm-hmm. um also in 1912 there was a film called for his son which is a film by uh dw griffith which is about a a man who's wants to try and help his son who's in financial straits and he's a he's kind of a, a chemist and what he does is he invents a soda which contains cocaine mm-hmm and sells it and becomes widely, hugely, you know, successful so he can give the money to his son. But then his son gets addicted to the drink and becomes a cocaine addict, uh, which is uh, towards the more sensational side. It doesn't really depict the effects of the drug in any kind of realistic or adult way. It just kind of has him become a kind of a wild eyed fiend who ends up, I believe, murdering his wife. (laughs) So it's like, it's very much of the kind of like, drugs are terrible. And also, hey, there's this long-standing rumor about Coca-Cola that we're kind of uh, uh, dramatizing here. Mm, I um, was at a family function about six weeks ago and I was speaking to someone who, I think they're kind of in their early 60s and they are adamant that Coca-Cola still has cocaine in it. Mm. And that's why they don't drink it. And I don't think that, that, I mean, was that ever true or was it that just an ever myth? Uh, I think it probably contained uh, elements of it because I'm pretty sure it came from the coca plant, but it didn't have, I don't, I don't know how much the actual like effects of cocaine were really felt in there. Mm. I, I, they def, I think they definitely had to change the recipe after cocaine became more of a controlled substance. Yeah. It just became really hard to justify having it for your, for your popular drink. Mm. And there's probably worse stuff in it than, like, cocaine, I'd imagine. Oh, yeah, based on those videos I've seen of people using it to, like, clean the insides of boats and things. Mm. And you put, like, you put a tooth in there and it just melts it. Like, so mm. I think you kind of, that's their way of saying, kind of fairly implicitly, that you can melt a human body in coke uh, if you haven't got a pig to feed it to. No, I think that probably would have been a better solution for Walt and Jesse on Breaking Bad. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a lot easier to justify going in and buying like 18 litres of Coca-Cola than to have to buy bleach. Mm, and they get arrested for being cokeheads because they're buying so much coke. Mm. 
what uh, obviously new Hollywood uh, ushered in a new era of of kind of uh, films that kind of changed the way that everything was viewed and drugs is no different than kind of uh, poster boy for that would be someone like Easy Rider, which was right at the start of that, and um, they love drugs in that film. Yes, there's lots of uh, smoking weed just kind of casually. It's not a big deal. There's a LSD freak out sequence, which is kind of a big centerpiece of it. Mm-hmm. Lots of kind of uh, Dennis Hopper and uh, uh, not Henry Fonda, which one? Peter Fonda. Peter Fonda, yeah. Yeah. Henry uh, Fonda, Fonda wouldn't do LSD, I don't reckon, in a <laughs> graveyard with Dennis Hopper. Although I reckon he was probably into that. I mean, they were were, like you say, back in the day. I, I personally, I think that would have been a much more improved cut. If they can find evidence that that ever happened, it would make me very, very happy. Um, but yeah, you're, you're right. That period of, of liberalisation uh, is, is when you start to see depictions of it where it's not purely, where it's either not completely ignored, which is, you know, what a lot of films in that kind of production code uh, period did, is they just ignored the fact that drugs existed mm. uh you may get occasional like references but it wasn't like you'd see like i think the the most uh prominent example i can think of from during that period is that charlie chaplin eats a bowl of cocaine in modern times mistaking it for sugar wow um which is not exactly uh kind of you know it's just a, a one-off gag in a film mm-hmm. it's not there really to uh be taken seriously as an indictment of the drug culture but you know, I think the the sixties and seventies, you start to see it just cropping up in films as a thing that people do, mm-hmm. like in uh, you know up to the point that you get something like Poltergeist in nineteen eighty two, where uh, the the parents and that just kind of smoke weed in the scene, and it's not really presented as a big deal. It doesn't even really suggest that they're unfit parents or anything. It's just like you know these are two people who probably were teenagers in the sixties and seventies. They probably smoke weed. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're all at it back then. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think once the kind of... When, when did that kind of perception of everyone kind of being so kind of clean behind the scenes kind of end? Because the 80s seemed to be the the kind of the decade of excess where um, it was almost kind of like a... Just an assumption that every producer was kind of Don Simpsoning their way through kind <laughs> of mountains of coke. And it was just, that's what it was, rather than kind of it being the unspoken thing that happened it was more on the table literally all over the table in little lines uh, i i think it must have been in the 70s because that's when you get things like uh martin scorsese being fairly open about his problems with cocaine and i know a lot of this came out like after the fact and you hear like bob rafelson talking about like on the production of head finding out that the monkeys weren't going to do it so he like does a line of coke and then throws their manager down the stairs until he agrees to make them appear in the film mm-hmm but, you know, I think uh, a lot of those stories came out after the fact, but I think some of them must have filtered through during the time because you also get that point where I think journalism gets a lot less um, respectful towards kind of people in power, towards politicians, towards studio heads and things like that. So I, I think during that period, it must have been, these stories must have kind of started leaking out a bit more that everyone in Hollywood is probably doing coke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, apart from Woody Allen, who's sneezing into uh, coke that he's being passed. Yeah, which I think that was the scene that I kind of thought of when just kind of thinking through films I've seen about kind of drug use. I, that was kind of a watershed from moment for me of someone having cocaine in a film where it wasn't the point of the film. Because mm. I think I'd seen Scarface a bit at that point, and obviously that's a big part of that plot point. And usually if someone's doing drugs, it's because either the film is a story about someone whose life is being destroyed because of their habit or they are involved in the procuring and selling of drugs. Mm. So like to have one where, oh, there's cocaine in a scene and this guy just sneezes into it and it goes everywhere mm. uh, was, I think for me at like 16 or 17, just kind of really mind blowing. Mm-hmm. I um, uh, had a friend once who said he went to a screening of Scarface. This this is going to sound awful. This is going to sound like the worst kind of night out in history. It was a screening of Scarface that was hosted by human traffic director Justin Kerrigan, who apparently was sat with his mates and they were all kind of mugging their way through the film and he was kind of laughing with them and his intro was like, yeah, this is a great Coke movie. And I just kind of think Scarface is is not a great Coke movie. It's a film with Coke in it and it is Mm. a kind of an outrageous comedy in which at the end of the film a man literally puts his head into 
several dozen kilos of cocaine <laughs> and then runs out of a door with a grenade launcher only to meet a kind of an end. And like that doesn't really kind of... I mean, firstly, to think that that film's a coke movie is fucking idiotic. But like like Goodfellas, for example... Um, yeah, I was going to say Goodfellas. I mean, if you want to say that something's a good coke movie, that's a decent coke movie, I guess. Um, the Last Waltz is a good coke movie because literally everyone... Sometimes, some of them, you can actually literally see it hanging off their nose... Uh, whilst they're performing, but yeah, Goodfellas is is a film that manages to depict um, the soaring highs and and like kind of devastating paranoid helicopter chasing you lows of of drug use. Yeah, that's uh, again like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. That is a good example of someone using the techniques of filmmaking to try and create recreate the sense of the drug, as opposed to like you say. Uh, uh, Scarface really just has people doing cocaine and it doesn't really seem to affect them that much mm. uh, it doesn't affect them and it doesn't affect the kind of storytelling whereas you do notice over the course of the, you know one of the great things about Goodfellas is each time period and segment is kind of structured and coloured to reflect the period in which it's set so you start off and it has kind of longer shots and longer editing to represent kind of like 50s 60s filmmaking and then by the end when uh, Henry Hill is just kind of descending into cult feud mania. He is like that. The editing is rapid fire. The soundtrack is going crazy, and it's just you know really really intense. Uh, I think you also kind of see that in Boogie Nights, mm-hmm. which is another film that really delves into the effect, the impact that drug addiction has on on Dirk Diggler, and starts to reflect that in kind of the just the, the general atmosphere of his life as he goes through the highs of it and then you know kind of crashes and has to kind of watch a half naked alfred miller you know just kind of talking about pop music whilst um jesse's girl plays in the background um and the filipino we... boy throws firecrackers yeah we talked about did we have did we used to do a feature on this when we talked about great scenes uh yeah i think we did it at one point and we we did it we did that scene because it's a fucking yeah. brilliant scene it's like unbelievably tense um, God, we've forgotten our own history. That did happen, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it, yeah, I'm pretty sure it did. Yeah, let's just say it did. Most of kind of what we, people think of as drug films are essentially films about addiction to drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problems created, like kind of the poster boys for this are things like train spotting, um, which weirdly, speaking, train spotting 2 went into production this week and started filming, I believe. That's something that I didn't think would happen, but that actually is happening. But there's kind of two films that people talk about a lot, I think, when they talk about kind of films about addiction. The first is is Trainspotting, uh, which I think is a marvellous film. Mm-hmm. But then, for me, that was a film that came out when I was like 16 and kind of, it was a very kind of zeitgeisty film. But also a lot of people talk about Requiem for a Dream, which is a film I have a big problem with, um, because I feel like that doesn't really have anything to say about addiction or drug use. Uh, it goes to great lengths to depict what it must be like to be on drugs using every kind of trick in the director's handbook. But by the end of it, I was none the wiser other than I just thought, yeah, that was pretty unpleasant. Yeah. I mean, tonally it's a lot closer to reefer madness than I think Darren (laughs) Abronofsky would really want to admit Mm -hmm. Uh, because it does go into some, tonally it's very melodramatic in a lot of places. It's very broad and, you know, even though, stylistically it's about as cutting edge as you could get in 2000 uh, in terms of like its aggressiveness and its use of editing to again mimic the the effect of being on drugs essentially it is just a hey you know if you do heroin you're going to lose your arm you're going to go to prison you'll have to go ass to ass with another woman mm-hmm. you if you do too many prescription pills the tv will start talking to you and your fridge will fall on you mm-hmm. um, or you know and you you'll, you'll imagine you're being eaten by a fridge uh, it doesn't really deal with like the actual impact of addiction in the way that, say, um, Smashed or the or Leaving Las Vegas would be. Although, obviously, alcohol is a drink, not a drug. Mm. So, you know, they don't really kind of fall under this. But those, obviously, those films that deal with addiction as something that uh, people can live with for quite a while and they, they can just kind of uh, have in the background of their life are a lot more measured than something like Requiem for a Dream, which really is kind of uh, keening and shrill. Mm. If kind of talking about addiction, kind of a relatively early text that deals with it in a very mature way, in a very excellent way, is um, Lost Weekend, um, Mm. the Billy Wilder film from, I 
think 58 or 59 i think it was before the apartment but i could well be wrong Um, i think it's the mid 40s is it jesus christ well i was right on one score it is before the apartment (laughs) which was released in 1960 um but i was only about 10 years out but i mean that's a a great film kind of in the in in terms of kind of dealing with uh, alcoholism yeah, and also, again, like the Man with the Golden Arm, you can really see that it's a lot more measured and mature and uh, introspective than kind of films of the same era. Mm-hmm. Like, there, there's a there's not a less less of the broadness that you would see of that same period. It's also significant in that it's one of the first to really grep, uh, grapple with the idea of alcoholism as something that affects, like, a normal person as opposed to, like, a cartoonish drunk that you would see in, like, Stagecoach. mm yeah. where they're figures that maybe you pity, but also you laugh at them. Mm-hmm. You know, this one is very much a case of, you know, this guy is just a guy trying to live his life and he has this crippling addiction to alcohol that's slowly destroying him. Mm-hmm. In in sense, I was kind of thinking about films about addiction and there is one that kind of is uh, not often talked about, probably for good reason, but I'm going to defend it anyway, is a film that is somewhat appropriately titled The Addiction which is a Abel Ferrara film uh, from, I think, 1990, although Ed will probably tell me it was made in the <laughs> mid-40s. And it is a vampire movie, but it is a vampire movie um, in which the vampires are junkies who are addicted to blood. And I can't really talk about it without saying how unbelievably pretentious the film is. Mm-hmm. But somehow it's actually really good. Yeah, I've... Still not seen it. I know it's one that you you've kind of recommended a lot, and but I, I do love the idea of using vampirism as a metaphor for addiction mm. because obviously it's that's what it is. If you're a vampire, you know, or, or if you're the the kind of vampire where you're still sentient and you still have memories of who you were, mm-hmm. then the need to kind of feed uh, and maybe feeling kind of ashamed of the fact that you have to do it is very much kind of a part of that whole mythology, as opposed to like. Buffy the Vampire Slayer kind of vampires where you become a vampire, you instantly lose your soul and become evil, so you don't really care that much about the fact you have to kill people to survive. Mm. But yeah, I'd, I'd recommend The Addiction. It's got a great cast. Lily Taylor is the uh, uh, the lead, and she's always hugely watchable. But I, I will tell you that there, it is wildly pretentious. Mm-hmm. It's in black and white, so that tells you all you need to know <laughs> about a film made in the early 90s. So yeah, kind of just approach with caution, but it is pretty good, man. I was thinking about the so-called war on drugs. We talked about the film Traffic, didn't we? War Machine versus Warhorse podcast, which is probably the definitive film about dealing with the war on drugs. But then, as we've mentioned several times before, um, The Wire, uh, the TV show, is is probably about as close to uh, an essential text on that subject as you're ever going to find. Yeah, and it's also one that at least in the story of bubbles genuinely does try to grapple with the effect the personal effect of drugs on an individual and you know how it destroyed their life and the quest for sobriety and things like that which is something that traffic doesn't really do because it doesn't have the time to do you know that's that's a whole story if you want to tell a story about someone recovering from addiction that should really be the center of a story and not just kind of a plot thread which is why the whole plot thread about um, Michael Douglas's daughter becoming addicted or to heroin in traffic always rings a little false because it's the part where they really have to rush through a lot of stuff Mm. to kind of get her to that, to that low ebb. Um, But yeah, that, that's a a series that, you know, part of the greatness of it is that it does try to offer as kind of uh, all encompassing a view of drugs as possible from the people who sell it to the people who use it to the people who try and stop it to you know all the different layers and different institutions that are involved Mm. yeah so from the kind of kids running drugs on the corners to the people wrestling with ineffective policy of how to deal with it when something is that definitive like the wire is it something that people use as a benchmark or is it ever gonna kind of always going to be viewed as something that's kind of unbeatable uh i think it will be unbeatable in television i don't know if anyone would ever really want to commit to trying to do a television show that did the same thing again both because you know it's a big ask to mm-hmm. say yeah we want to make this show about the drug trade and it's going to be long and slow and it's going to really delve into every aspect of it over a long period of time and it's going to access a lot of audiences but also because who wants to be compared to the wire 
who wants mm. to kind of go up against it. But I do feel like it will provide a benchmark and maybe even a blueprint for people who want to try and take that approach and bring it into films and to try and do something a little more uh, substantial because you have something there. He says, hey, you can tell these kind of stories and you can tell it in a way that is still emotionally effective, that is still interesting and dramatic, but doesn't have to be kind of histrionic. Mm, Yeah. I guess it's like it probably makes films about the war on drugs better in a post-wire world, you would um, they probably have to just try a little harder. Which is interesting to see what traffic would have been like had it been made after the wire had finished. About whether maybe they would have approached things differently. Hmm. I can only wonder. I was thinking about films which had which. To be honest, I'm crowbarring mentioning this film in because um, <laughs> I was thinking about films that have niche drugs in them. Right. And I got to thinking about the kind of the more. Kind of things like ayahuasca and peyote. Mm-hmm. Um, and whenever I think of peyote, I always think about the film Blueberry. Have you ever seen the film Blueberry, Ed? Uh, no. I'm going to describe the film Blueberry to you. It is a okay. American-French western uh, based on a French comic book. It stars Vincent Cassell, Juliette Lewis, Michael Manson, Jimon Husu, Eddie Izzard, Tamura Morrison and Ernest Borgnine. Wow. It is about a cowboy who takes peyote and kind of goes on a mystical quest. I can't remember a great deal about it because (laughs) I watched it a long time ago. And given that I watched it kind of during a period of my life where I smoked a lot of weed, I can't remember a lot of the details. (laughs) I can remember it's not very good. And, uh, but the reason I kind of want to talk about it is because that film is fucking crackers. And if you can see it, which is very hard because it's pretty rare and I don't think it was released on DVD over here. It was popular in France, I think, but not popular outside. It's such a weird film that doesn't work on any level, <laughs> but yet it's somehow watchable because all the people in it. And this guy that I know who uh, I made a film with years ago, he was like a much older guy. He was uh, an ice cream man during the day, um, but did like band security at night and also was a drug dealer. He is in Blueberry. He was oh, wow. living in Spain, I think, for reasons unknown. But he was sleeping in a van and he got cast as an extra in this. And he pushes Ernest Borgnine around in a wheelchair for like the whole film. And I'm still yet to believe that it is actually him. But it is really him. He's in wow. a couple of scenes. Um, but, the, I mean, that's the least baffling aspect of that film. <laughs> it's how this guy I know called Wayne ended up in it. But, yeah, I mean, in terms of... There's not really a great deal of films about that kind of stuff. And it's a little wonder that the ones that are don't really seem to work because I think it's probably something kind of that you kind of almost have to experience rather than see someone else experience. Yeah, I think that what's interesting over the last 10, 15 years or so is you really do see how greater acceptance of drug use, of casual drug use, is reflected in the films being made. Um, Mm -hmm. I was looking up um, information provided by the New York Film Academy, who did a whole thing where they they looked at, you know, the history of drug representation in cinema. And uh, in the first decade of the 21st century, there were more films made in America featuring drug use than in the entirety of the previous 50 years from 1950 to 2000. Mm Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is driven by, I think, certainly the Apatow kind of school who will use drugs a lot as plot points or as character signifiers. Um, For example, in Knocked Up, the fact that uh, uh, Seth Rogen's character is a stoner is shown to say, oh, you know, he doesn't have his life together. He's a kind of a loser. He and and his giving up the weed is, is kind of seen as part of his maturity. Uh, or, you know, the whole point of Pineapple Express is the fact that they try and buy some weed and they happen to witness a killing and then everything kind of goes from there. But I think that's obviously brings it kind of to a more mainstream uh, form and to, you know, to more people, more eyes because it's a big, broad comedy. But uh, I, I think you do notice this a lot with like independent movies and things like that, you know, independent dramas or something in that there will usually be a character who smokes weed either because they're a loser or just because it's the, the, the filmmakers who make it smoke weed and they're like, Oh, you know, this is what a normal person would be doing. Mm. I'd love it to be like, just thrown in there in like a kind of a family movie, like something like a freaky Friday and at dinner, the mum just shoots up heroin. 
<laughs> and see if like, we can really soften the attitudes to heroin use. Um, you, I was, you do occasionally see in like big mainstream family comedies, like someone will do, someone will eat pot brownies by mistake and they'll get really wacky. And those are always the best scenes in those films. They're not yeah. in any way embarrassing or terrible. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. It's let's see how embarrassing it is when I don't know, like some kind of like likable starlet is you know locking themselves in a room with a bucket and some chicken soup. Um, <laughs> then it will get ugly. I just thought about the. Uh, when they take drugs in 21 Jump Street, when they take the, is it HFS? Holy fucking shit. Yeah. The, I'm just thinking about funny watching Rob Riggle poking Jonah Hill's tongue back into his into his mouth. <laughs> is So yeah, that pro- probably is the, the key text on, on kind of 21st century drug taking. Yeah, and, and certainly the key text if you want to see Channing Tatum throw himself through a drum. <laughs> and just say, yeah, fuck you, Mal Davis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that seems like a decent enough kind of place to wrap it up. What have we got for recommendations this week, Ed? I'm going to recommend a film that uh, I've watched for the first time this week, and which uh, I know you've seen because I think you mentioned it like two weeks ago. Uh, it's the Wayne Wang film Smoke, mm. which is from 1995 and is a very charming kind of uh, independent comedy drama which isn't heavy on plot it's co-written by paul auster or i think that's how you say his name i never really remember it's austere without an e so Mm. auster i guess um and it's essentially just about it's a series of vignettes all about these characters who uh, frequent the same tobacco shop in brooklyn uh and it's got you know harvey keitel william hurt forrest whitaker harold perino Stockard Channing wearing an eye patch, which is just kind of never, I don't think he's ever explained in the film. It's just a lovely detail. Um, uh, Ashley Judd in one scene is, it's basically has, oh, oh and uh, Giancarlo Esposito in one scene. It has everyone, basically uh, everyone who was in uh, kind of independent films at that point shows up at one point or another. And it's just a, a series of great scenes, like lovely dialogue, really great stories, great performances by actors who are clearly having a great time just kind of with these very low stakes characters where you're not, you know, you're not trying to save the world. You're not going to kill anyone. You're just people having conversations. And uh, it's got some of, uh, some of Harvey Keitel's best work, particularly when he has to tell uh, a story that was provided the basis for the entire film where he talks about um, a particular Christmas that he spent with uh, a blind woman, which is, Mm. Uh, really, really kind of fantastic work on his part. Mm. It's a really good film. There's a sequel to it as well called uh, Blue in the Face, which was, uh, I believe, improvised on the set, mm-hmm. um, yeah. but with more famous people in it. So Madonna's in it. Uh, I think Michael J. Fox is in it from memory. It's a long uh, yes, time ago since I've seen it. But yeah, um, and also if kind of you're into that kind of thing, uh, there's a book which is uh, kind of, I might be edited by Paul Auster called True Tales of American Life which is a book full of little tiny stories sent in to, I think, is it the radio show called All Things Considered? Is that uh, a thing? Yeah. Yeah. Like. People send in these little stories and they're sometimes half a page about, yeah, I think the first one is about like someone watching a chicken that walks on the street and then just goes into someone's house. Uh, <laughs> or, the, you know, someone, you know, like a four page about like someone's dad dying or something. It's, it's a really good book. And if you're into Paul Auster and Smoke, then you'd like that as well. I'm going to recommend this week something entirely different. I've been moving house this week and uh, moving house is horrible, um, especially when the house you're moving to is a bit of a state and you've got to kind of kind of fix it up. And what made me feel better about having to fix up a crappy house into a place where you're going to call home was thinking about the film Overboard, <laughs> where <laughs> Goldie Horn, the uh, kind of snobbish, spoiled socialite, has to do just that to Kurt Russell's house and kind of fix up not only his house, but his life um, and make him think twice about playing a prank on a woman who he has abducted. (laughs) Because you just try not to think about that part of the film too much. It's a great film and it always puts a smile on my face. And that's what I've been thinking about this week. So are you saying people should watch it or should you just think about watching it? Um, if you've seen it then think about it but if you haven't seen it then watch it what's wrong with you I haven't seen Overboard he builds a golf course in the end based on the seven wonders of the world even though there are nine or eighteen holes in a golf course he did not think that through 
So, anyway, that is your lot on the subject of drugs uh, this week. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Player FM. And if you really enjoyed the show, please leave us a little review. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, at SRS underscore podcast, and on Facebook, too, and also at our website, which is www.srspodcast.com. We'll be back next week with the long-awaited rock and roll episode, and this week that means, Ed, we finally have to watch the All Saints movie. Uh, yes, I am delighted and dreading it in equal measure. Mm, you, I mean, you've been ill this week, and like you said beforehand that you've been kind of like in and out of fever. I think that was probably <laughs> the time to watch Honest. Um, but yeah, we are going to watch that this week and report back next week. So until then, it is goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. 